So Paul, the apostle, the missionary, is writing to these churches in a region in Ephesus um, right at the beginning. If you look at the first couple of verses, I'm not going to spend a ton of time uh, there. But, but Paul has um, addressed this church. Um, he has been called by God, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So everything that Paul is doing is not his opinion. It's not his, you know, I, I need a job and I'm just going to go and tell people about Jesus, that he has been called by Jesus himself. He was knocked off a horse. Uh, he was converted and, and Jesus said, hey, I have a mission for you. I want you to go tell the nations about me and my kingdom. And so he is doing uh, just that. But if you notice, he's also addressing it to the saints. Who, who are me and you. We're not talking about you know saints and Catholicism, but we're talking about saints, holy ones, that if you are in Christ Jesus, you are considered a saint. You are a holy one. You are a new creation. That's your identity in Christ. So he's addressing them as saints and are, he's addressing them as faithful because they follow Christ Jesus. That's who they are. And then grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, a very standard opening for Paul. And he's actually going to sandwich that saying, grace and peace to you at the very end of his letter, which we'll get to in uh, quite a few few weeks. But it's all about grace and it's all about peace. It's grace that God has extended to us to redeem us and restore us. It's peace with God, but it's also peace with each other and grace with each other. The whole thing is sustained by grace and by, by peace. And so he's addressing this church, these people, these faithful ones, these saints um, that, are, that, are, that are scattered around the, the Roman Empire. And what's so unique about Ephesians is that if you dig a little bit around, and, and partly why I wanted, we, we called the, the series, you know, New Life in Society, is that, that it's not just a little ragtag group of people with their private little faith, but it's actually by this faith, they're literally transforming the Roman Empire. And, and where, where do I get that? Well, if you jump back to Acts chapter 19, I just wanted to show you this. Because this is what happens when people embrace the living, risen Christ. In Acts chapter 19, a riot breaks out in Ephesus. And in Acts 19, 23, it says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which is disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus. For a man named Demarius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, Artemis excuse me, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from the business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. I love that. This Paul character has turned people away from this god Artemis, which was a god in, uh, in, in Ephesus. There was a big, great temple. It's the seventh wonder of the world that people would bow down to this, this god and, 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 and worship, worship it. He says, and you see then here that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, Paul has persuaded, turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So he's basically saying you can't worship this thing. They don't speak. They don't hear. They don't talk. It's kind of a waste of time. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So because of the power of the gospel, God, people have, have laid down their false worship, their pagan gods of, of this, this big deity, this temple that they would lay down their lives for and say, now they, they lay down their lives for the risen Christ. And because they can't sell these little trinkets and shrines in the marketplace, they're literally going out of business because there's no business for them anymore because they worship the true God. So sometimes I wonder, when the gospel gets a hold of people, what would, what would shut down in our city that, that because, because people don't want those things anymore, whatever those sinful things are, whatever they, they worship, right? 
They say, no, I, I worship a different God now. I, I don't put my hope in that false God that can't speak or can't touch or can't, can't see. And so, so what we see in, in Ephesus is a very healthy church, a, a, a people who are being transformed from the inside out, that even the, in the marketplace is being transformed because of the living Christ. And they're going out of business. I don't know, this Paul, he keeps converting everyone. And what are we going to do? <laughs> Nobody wants to buy our statues anymore. Nobody wants to, to bow down anymore. And so that's the, the power that the, the, the gospel has. Now go back to Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> because as we look at Ephesians, what's so astounding is that there's so much uh, uh, biblical doctrinal truth in this uh, uh, first section that, that Paul's not even making an argument. Paul is great at making arguments, isn't he? I mean, if you read the New Testament, you see Paul is always arguing about something and this and this and this. He's got these long sentences, nine verses, 12 verses long, just ranting and raving about this. But Paul is so struck and so amazed by this gospel that has transformed him, that has called him to bring the message of Jesus to the nations, that he breaks out in song. That the first verses of Ephesians is a song. It's not an argument. It's not a defense. It's a song. Well, where do I I get that from? Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This, This word blessed is the same word we get the word eulogy from. If you've ever been to a funeral, you, you, you eulogize someone as you say encouraging words about them. You, you, you show how they're praiseworthy. And so, so blessed be the God, our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's eulogizing God. He, he's saying, look at all the spiritual blessings that we have in the, in the Father and in the Son. And we'll get into it, into the, the Spirit. Look, look who He is. Look what He's done. Look how He's transforming me. Look how He's transforming His people and building His church. And that, that even um, um, pagan businesses are going out of business because of what God is is doing. Praise your name. Bless your name. Eulogize your name. Some commentators have have looked at this this blessing, this this song, uh, this this praise, and and they stand back and they... I love love the way a couple commentators talk about this little section. It says, We enter this epistle through a magnificent gateway, writes Finley. It's a golden chain of many links or a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colors. William Hendrickson likens it to a snowball tumbling down a hill, picking up volume as it descends. And E.K. Simpson, less ferociously perhaps to some long-winded racehorse, careening onward at full speed. More romantic is John McKay's musical simile. This rhapsodic adoration is comparable to the overture of an opera which contains the successive melodies that are to follow. And Armitage Robinson suggests that it's like the preliminary flight of the eagle rising and wheeling round as though for a while uncertain what direction in his boundless freedom he shall take. That Paul doesn't know what to do other than to look at and marvel and praise and bless and sing. This is our gospel song that God invites us into. It seems appropriate, doesn't it? I mean, I mean think about singing. We, we joke about, I mean, we sing every Sunday, right? Um, I, I've made this joke before, and it never gets good laughs, but I mean, I, I imagine, um, you know, going to work on Monday, you're probably not going to open the business meeting with just like, hey, I just got a little Led Zeppelin I'd like to share with you. Um, here's, here it goes, right? But, but, but singing is appropriate, right? 
And you've heard me quote this many times over, and singing is absolutely appropriate when we see the mercies and the grace of God, when we see something that's breathtaking, that's magnificent, we, song just kind of rises up in us. And, and if you know the story, and I've shared this in different bits and pieces, but if you know the story of C.S. Lewis, he had a hard time with God because God was always telling him, you need to praise me, you need to sing to me. And he thought he was self-seeking and an egomaniac. But over time, as he thought about it more and more, he realized God's not an egomaniac. Because if God has everything in the universe that we need, he has all joy, all grace, all life, all power in him. Of course, we, he would say, sing to me. I have everything that you need. Now, me and you opening the business meeting saying, hey, can you sing to me? Can you praise to me? That's going to go bad. You'll probably lose your job. But C.S. Lewis says this in his reflections on the Psalms. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is a pointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is complete till it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silence because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can um, in the ditch, he's English, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. You see, singing in praise completes the joy. It has to be expressed. It's not just a, a, a defense. It's not just an argument. It's not just, well, let me pull it apart. Let me think about it. That's not how songs work, right? They're spontaneous. And so what Paul is doing is he's, he's blessing the God and the Lord Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing. It makes total sense. As he's seen what God has done and how he redeemed him, as he was a, a terrorist, a hater of God, and redeemed him and said, I have a mission for you, he is marveling at this God. He's singing a gospel song. And so that's where I just want to go for a few moments here as we look at this this morning is first what is the foundation of this gospel song? You could say, what is the baseline? What is the base note? What holds it all together? We're going to look at the particulars of this gospel song, and then how do we get in on the music? How do we get in on the music? So first, the foundation of our, our gospel song, the, the baseline, the base note. Well, it's, it's very, let me, I know this is not a great place to start a sermon because people have uh, argued and defended and debated and tried to understand this for like thousands of years, but uh, it's very Trinitarian, okay? So Father, Son, and, and Spirit. It, it's very clear in this, this song that, that, that Paul is a Trinitarian. He believes in one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and spirit. And so when we think about singing and we think about the, the audience that we sing to, we're not talking about, we're, we're just kind of, you know, vague deists or, or, or cold formal theists. We're talking about we are Trinitarian, that we, we worship the God of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who is fully God, made, revealed in three persons. They're not three gods. There's, there's one God revealed in three persons with, with, with three different specific ways in which they relate to each other, in which they relate to redemption and, and, and the universe. And, and Paul makes that, that very clear, right? right? Right in verse 3, right at the beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the father is, is, is the, the, the kind of main, he's always connected to the main verb in this whole section here. 
That the, the Father's doing all of these things in eternity. He's doing all these things in his, his people. He blesses us in verse 3. In verse 4, he chooses us. In verse 5, he predestines us. We'll get to that later. He, in 6, he, he blessed us in the beloved. He shows his favor on us. He loves us. He showers his grace on us. And in 7 and 8, he lavishes on us God's grace and God's mercy. Um, in 9 and 10, he's making known this mystery. In verse 11, he's, he's working all things in accordance with his his will. The, the Father is at work. He's doing something. He's holding things together. He has a very specific role. You could say that the Father, in summary, has set his love and poured out grace upon his people. And he's working out a historical and eternal plan of redemption. That it was his plan and his working. That's what's so, so amazing about a song, right? It, it, we respond to the song. We're, we're, not, we're, not the bit, we're not the main players. It's like, well, I added a verse here. I added a bridge here. You know, I added this kind of cool A chord over here. God's saying, no, you didn't add anything. I'm just inviting you in to sing the song. I'm the one that's been at work from eternity past. I'm the one that's, that's been showering you with love and grace and calling you to myself and, and, and building my, my kingdom. I'm the one who's, who's taking the initiative. So, so the, the foundation of our, our gospel song involves the Father, but it also involves the Son. What's so amazing about uh, this little, I mean, it's only four, 14 verses, but, but this is astounding when we look at God the Son, is that the spiritual blessings from the Father are received and enjoyed and given through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and in this, this short little section, 14 times Christ or His name, His or Him or He, is mentioned 14 different times. And then 15 times in just these first 14 verses, in Christ or in him is, is, a men, is a mentioned, excuse me, 11 times. 15 times is his name, 11 times is in Christ or in him. That it's all about Christ. That when we talk about being Christians, we're talking about being in Christ. That it's faith in Christ that we come to the Father. It's, it's in Christ that, that we can, can receive the Holy Spirit. It's in Christ that we have a, a new identity. It's, it's in believing in the redemptive work of Christ that we have everything that we need. And we're secured in Him. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. It's the redeeming work of Jesus that makes dead people alive. It's the redeeming work of Jesus, the work that you and I couldn't do, that brings us into the family. And Paul, when he begins his letter to the Ephesians, or you say in Ephesus, notice what he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He doesn't use vagary. He doesn't use generalities. He says they're faithful because they're in Christ Jesus, that they're trusting in, walking in, believing in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and what he's done, his life, his death, his resurrection, his coming again. But I think if we take that in Christ piece and, and understand what, what the Son ha, has done, the, the reason we, we sing is because formally, and we'll get to that in chapter 2 in, in a couple weeks, formally, really there's only two groups of people in the universe. There's those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. That's how the Bible talks. 
Either those who are still following, the, as Paul, Paul will say, the, the, the demons of the air, the, the prince of darkness, still following their own ego, still following their own sin, still following their own, own ideally. We're in Adam. But what, what God did, as Romans makes it very clear, is that he's brought us now into Christ, that, that Adam has no play anymore. The old man is gone. The new man has come. And so we have a new identity. It's no longer us walking in sin, walking in Adam, but now we walk in Christ because of his redemptive work. It's not this denomination, that denomination, this political persuasion, good people, bad people. It's really just two groups of people. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. And the two aren't that far off. And that's why Christians need to be humble. Because the way you got in was not because you're awesome. That not that long ago, you were in Adam as well. But by believing in the Lord Jesus, as we sang, come to the altar, all who are weary, all who are struggling. You, you came to the altar needing bread, needing salvation, needing grace, needing mercy, needing forgiveness. You're not that much different than your non-Christian friend who lives across the street. It's easy to forget that, isn't it, church? And so, so we realize if it's all gift, if it's all mercy, I'm not going to treat my non-Christian friends as, as if they're, they're garbage or trash. I'm going to remember where I've been, that I, I was there too, not that long ago. And it's all by God's grace and all God's mercy that I'd even be in the family of God, which we'll get into in just a moment. So, so, so we sing because, because Christ has, has come. He's offered us redemption. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He's forgiven us in Him in 6 and 7. And we have this Holy Spirit now who lives and dwells in us, which is the third part of our foundational part of our song is God the Spirit. We see that in... Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Don't miss that. If you have a spiritual blessing, you need the Spirit. That's Paul's way of talking about the Holy, Holy Spirit. This is applied by the Spirit of God, the person of God, the work of God, that when you believe in Christ, you have the spiritual, uh, the, excuse me, the Holy Spirit comes in, in and dwells with you and walks with you. If we jump back to the, the bottom of the song in, in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance and been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession to the praise of his glory. Paul will say in Romans 8, 9 to 11, that if we don't have the Spirit of God, then we don't have Christ. That they go together. That when we believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life and to live as new people in Him. So you see this beautiful song, and he's saying the foundation of our song is Father, Son, and Spirit. They all have a part to play. They all have a role to play, and they're all fully God, which is so important to remember, because I know, especially, okay, I think, I think, can, can I safely say this? Like, like we kind of get the father, like, okay, yeah, we, all of us have fathers, you know, some way, shape, or form. That's how you came in the world, just so you know. I don't want to go into a biology lesson, but father, right? We, we get sons, right? Okay. But Holy Spirit, like, just kind of, I don't know, weird uncle, weird cousin, like in the corner, woo-woo, kind of, right? Like, we're not sure. 
We're not sure. Like we get Father, Son, okay, Spirit, okay, yeah, I know the Spirit come, dwell, right? But, but I love the Athanasian Creed because I think it's important to remember that the Spirit is also a person, fully God. Here's what the Athanasian Creed says, one of our creeds that we adhere to. It says, what quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings, there is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, there is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Obviously, we could spend all of eternity trying to understand the Trinity, but it's important for us to remember that the Father and the Son and the Spirit were never created. They've always been. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit are persons that we relate to fully as God, one person. Because I think Father, Son, okay, get that, but then the Spirit, I'm not sure what, what to do with that, but they are all at work in redemption, all at work in the world. That's the baseline of our song. We don't sing about some vague sky fairy. We sing about a God who's revealed himself as Father and as a Son and as Spirit. But what about some particulars? So Paul's going to move into and get very uh, particular with this, this song. Some, some particulars of our gospel song, because I think these are, are so important. Again, as I was kind of working through this, I, I just felt like we should just be singing. I, I don't know. I, I'm not a great singer, but, but you know, somehow, rather than trying to unpack all of the, the, the profoundness, the, the deepness, the, the wideness that, that theologians and, and pastors and church leaders and, and, and everyday saints have tried to work through these big theological ideas, but I think it's so apropos that Paul puts it in a song. He says, can we just sing about these things? We don't need to argue these things into existence. So what, what are a couple of these particulars? Well, one of those is how God has, in our past, redeemed us, elected us to be his sons and his daughters. And so the past, it's a song of election. Did you see that in verse 4? even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. <clears throat> in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I know we, we don't like the idea of election or predestination, but let me tell you, in, in the Greek, predestination means predestination. It means beforehand. Before the foundations of the world, God was redeeming a people for his self. Which is such good news for us because there's a lot of bad, wonky teaching and theology that says that you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that. Because before the foundation of the world, before you ever said yes to Jesus, before you ever walked the aisle, before you ever jumped into the baptismal, before you ever signed some car, before you ever knelt before your mama at, a, at the side of her bed and said, yes, I love Jesus, before that, God was redeeming a people for his namesake to ensure that you never lose your salvation. It's not you come in and then you just work really hard to try not to mess things up and watch too many R-rated movies and God will kick you out of the kingdom. That's not how this works. That once he redeems us, he also is going to sustain us. I love, I love what John Stott, I'm going to rely on him just for a couple moments here. In his commentary, he, he talks about election. He says this, now everybody finds the doctrine of election difficult, right? Didn't I choose God? Somebody asks indignantly, to which we must answer, yes, indeed you did, and freely, 
but only because in eternity God has first chosen you. Boom, drop the mic. <laughs> Didn't I decide for Christ? Asked somebody else, to which you must reply, yes, indeed you did, and freely, but only because in eternity God had first decided for you. Yes, in a sense, we all choose God. We all have to believe in Christ Jesus, but he's already been at work long before. That's why planting New City Church was so free because I believed in Ephesians 1 that said, before the foundations of the world, Lord, there's people in Kansas City that don't know you, but they're going to know you because they're your people and you're going to draw them. And so as we preach the gospel and as we pray and as we befriend them, you're going to draw them in. I don't need to manipulate them. I don't need to scream at them. I don't need to give out, you know, hand out Tim Keller apologetics and maybe if I just get my, my things just right, Maybe they'll come into the kingdom that I believe before the foundations of the world, God was drawing a people to himself. I just need to open my mouth and pray like crazy that the Holy Spirit blows them up and brings them into the kingdom. Oh, such a better way to do evangelism. Ephesians 1 is a great help. Amen? Nobody gets manipulated or argued into the kingdom. And you know what? God really doesn't need your help all that much. That's my story. I wasn't looking for God. I I didn't sit down and go, let me let me get all the 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 you know existence of God. Let's get this straight. Let's get suffering straight. Let's get you know all the all the hangups that we typically have. Right? I grew up in a kind of a hard dysfunctional family, divorce, all kinds of stuff, abuse, you name it. It's like if I could just get all those things straightened out. I saw hypocrisy in the church. If I could figure out all that. And in July of 1996, God said, you're mine. I know you got hang-ups, Ryan. I know you got pain. But before the foundation of the world, I've been at work. But that's who I am. That's his grace and his mercy. He, he's not waiting you know, for us to kind of sit back and go, well, I chose God. Yeah, we did choose him because he's already been at work. I think there's another piece to this, this song of election in, in our past that, that I think is really helpful. And, and I'm going to lean on um, Stott again, uh, John Stott, who, who passed away a few years ago, great uh, pastor and Bible teacher and commentator. And he says this about dealing with election. That he gives these kind of three ideas, which I think are really helpful. He says, just remember this, that election is divine revelation, not human speculation. Can, can I just say this? I know we're at the safe place, right? John Calvin did not come up with election. I know that shocks some of you. Augustine did not come up with election. Luther did not come up with election. The the apostles didn't even come up with election. Election was revealed through the scriptures and through history, right? It's not not human speculation. It's not people sitting in a room going, oh, what's this predestination about? It's right here in Ephesians 1, right? Right? It's God revealing, saying, this is what I do. This is who I am, right? Even in creation, God creates Adam and creates Eve and puts them in the garden. In some sense, they would say, that's even election. God, that wasn't their idea. He, he created all things. He took the initiative. In Israel, right? Deuteronomy 7, I've chosen a people. I, I've loved them from the, the, the weakest, most pathetic nation of all the universe, and I've chosen them to be mine. And through them, my plan of redemption would be, be, be fulfilled. The 12 disciples, right? They didn't go out and go, hey, what's the rabbi that we should find to learn from? One of the most remarkable things in the first century Judaism was Jesus was the only one that went and found his disciples. All the others would go, oh, I like this one. I like this one. I like his wisdom on this. 
Jesus was the one that said, hey, hey, hey John, hey, James, hey, hey Peter, come and, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. He goes and finds them, right? And just like us, he redeems us. He, he, he brings us into the, the, the family. So this isn't about human speculation. But also election is a beautiful doctrine because it motivates holy and godly living. It's not, um, it's not to, to, to live in sin and idolatry. It actually motivates it. Even as he chose us and been before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That if we've been redeemed in Christ, we're, we're going to want to live a holy and blameless life. That's part of the package. I want to live a life that honors God. I, I, I want to live a Christ-like life. That, that's my, my calling. You've redeemed me before the foundation of the world. You've, you've showered grace and mercy on me. Now I'm called to live in accordance with that. Because some will say, well, well, don't people just get passive? I mean, if we were chosen before the foundation of the world, don't we just live it up, right? Grace, grace, grace. That's insane. Like, like think about that logically. That's insane. So you're telling me the God of all grace and mercy, the God who created all things, Father, Son, and Spirit, comes and redeems the people for his name, and then we just go, I'm just going to, that's nice, I get to go to heaven, but I'm just going to live how I want to live. That, that's insane. I mean, Paul says that in Romans, right? About sin. Go. Why would we still live in sin? That doesn't make sense. So grace will abound? No way. Because part of redemption is now we have the Holy Spirit to live lives worthy of him. It's not just getting into heaven when you die. But God making a new people, a new life, a new society that are conformed in the image of, of Christ. So it actually motivates holy living. When we, we, we take a step back and we pause and go, God, are you kidding me? Before the foundation of the world you were thinking of me? Like, I don't think that even that word, we, we don't, like before there was anything, just God, just Father, Son, and Spirit, he was thinking about you, Joe. And Anne. And Blaine, Elizabeth, he, he was, he was thinking, he had his affection set on you. Ryan, Scott, Sarah, Dan, Sarah, a lot of Sarahs, Christy, the young family, before the foundations of the world, God in heaven was thinking about you. And it had nothing to do with the sin you're going to commit when you're 16. <clears throat> Which I think is a nice segue into the third thing Stott says is that it creates humility, not arrogance. Christians should be the most humble people in the universe if they understand Ephesians 1. <laughs> right? Like we don't bring anything to the table. You've heard me, I probably stole this from someone, I don't even know, but, you know, we don't stand on the, on the Grand Canyon and flex our muscles, right? Like, that, that's silly. Like, hey, God, you like that? It's like, Pfft. I mean, you're looking at the Grand Canyon. I mean, have you stood at the, the side of the Grand Canyon? It brings out awe, like we want to sing, right? You're just like, oh my gosh, this thing is amazing and huge, right? Nobody's flexing their muscles. No one's going, hey, the minivan, it's got a V8. Yeah, how do you like them apples? Like, nobody does that, right? 
So, so, I mean, he, he humbles us. It brings us low. And it says, thank you, God. Thank you that there's nothing I could have done. There's nothing. I could not choose you. I didn't want to choose you. Everything in my life was pointing in the opposite direction. You came and you redeemed me and you, you found me. And so that even when we interact with our brothers and sisters and those outside the family, there should be great humility and, and, and great grace to those that don't believe. Because you came in by that same grace. So what, you're going to be arrogant now? And go, hey, look at me. It's because I read Calvin. I read Keller. I'm going to argue you down, right? That's insane. Amen. I like to growl. We need more growling in this church. <laughs> so it makes us humble people. So we have this past song of election. I'll, I'll move just a couple more here, and then we'll get into how to join the song. But, but there's also this present song that's part of the particular particularities of this gospel song, and it's a song of adoption. One of the most precious doctrines there is. I, I almost cry just thinking about it, but verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons, you could put in daughters, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, through which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He adopts us into his family. That election wasn't just God going, oh, meeny, meeny, miny, mo. But there's a process here of uh, before the foundation, I'm going to redeem a people for my name, but I'm going to adopt them into the family of God. They're going to become my kids. Now, we have many families in our church that have adopted children. And guess what? The kids, they get full rights to the family, don't they? It's not, hey, uh, you can wait a few. There's a kind of a, a testing period. We'll see how you guys turn out. You sit outside for a while. Then maybe, maybe you can have the full rights of the family. When, when you're adopted in, you, you belong. You have all the blessings, all the rights of the family. You get to sit around the table, enjoy all the love and all the joy. God invites us in. And the way that he invites us in and the way we're allowed to is because of redemption and forgiveness. That we can approach the Father because the Son died and because we believe in the Son, because we have the Holy Spirit, we can now approach God. We've been forgiven of all of our sins because no one can approach a holy God. But because of the work of Jesus, we can sing this song of election. We can marvel at that because now we're part of the family. And we're part of the family not because, because of us and not because of our reputation and not because of our morality or our goodness, but because grace and mercy has been poured out by God and all his infinite wisdom and all his infinite mercy and for his infinite glory to say I'm making a people for my name and you get to play and you get to be part of the family like do we pause long enough to just to just go wait 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 I'm part of God's family like I know I have a biological family but I'm like the Father, Son, and Spirit of that family, I'm part of that? Yeah, you're part of that, and you're also part of all of you. You have brothers and sisters as well. And your brother Jesus brought you in. That's why Paul's singing. That's why he's giving a eulogy here. Because he's marveling at this election before the foundation of the world, that our past was secured by Christ, and that our present reality is adopted sons and daughters of the king. And I want to tell you how practical that doctrine is for daily living. Because guess what? When you sin, 
You're not out of the family. Now, like a good kid, you'd want to say, hey, I'm sorry, Dad. Screw that one up. Hey, I still love you, bud. It's the hardest thing about parenting. It's like you, you, you live this, this tension of, I, I want to be, you know, uh, make sure they understand sin and make sure they understand wrongdoing and, and all that. But I want to make sure that double time they understand grace and love. It's hard to walk the, that line, isn't it? But guess what? The one thing I always say to my kids is, hey, buddy, you know dad loves you, right? When I have to correct them or discipline them, you know dad loves you, right? I mean, in that moment, it's like, yeah, I think. I mean, that seemed kind of harsh, kind of, I mean, I don't know. But I want you to know that I love you because, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, God disciplines his children. It's because he loves us. He wants the best for them. And so when we fall on our faces and we realize, we remember, we're adopted. God's not going, you can't sit at the table anymore. You're not welcome anymore. Those rights don't go away, right? Now, he'd want us to confess those. He'd want us to say, hey, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for being dumb. I'm sorry for treating my wife like that or my kids like that. We lay those bare. But it's reason to sing, isn't it? And then, and then lastly, there's, there's another one particular, and that's the future reality, that it's a song of unity. We've been elected, brought in before the foundations of the world to be sons and daughters, to be adopted into the family of God, but there's also a future song of unity that Paul brings out in 9 and 10. He says, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now this is a, a kind of a confusing text. It's, people vary on, on what, what it means and what it, what it says. But I think at, at its core, what, what it's saying is that God is, because of this redemption, he is uniting all things, heaven and earth, things we see, things we can't see, ultimately in Christ. He's redeeming all things. He's restoring all things. So, so when God uh, invites us into the family, he's not just you know, allowing us to go to heaven when we die as just individuals who love Jesus, but he's actually renewing and restoring the entire cosmos, the entire creation, that all the things that are at war against God right now, uh, us against God, uh, us against each other horizontally, and also even against his, his creation, that he's redeeming and he's restoring even that. So what Paul says in Romans 8, that the, 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 the creation is aching, it's groaning because it's not where it should be. It's, it's redemption hasn't come yet. And, and that's why our hearts and our souls should redeem or should groan when we, we see the abuses, we see the injustice, we see the sin in our own lives. It's like, Lord, please come, redeem it fully. It's not there yet. I see all the fracturing. I see all the division. I see all the disunity. God, you are our only hope. God, come. Unite all things. So all who believe in Christ, all who are this new humanity, this new society will be brought together with God together as he redeems and restores all things, the visible and the invisible. Do you notice what Paul's doing here? Our past and our present and our future are all secure. That's why he sings. God, you did in the past what I couldn't do for myself, and in the present you've made me your son, your daughter of the king, and in the future you're going to restore and renew all things. So even if my life just ends up horrifically wrong and bad, you are making all things new. 
And even if the world just keeps going down and spiraling out of control and gets darker and darker, God, I know that there's still hope in you because you are uniting all things and making all things new. That there will be one day no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. And so my past and my present and my future are all secure. I would say, church, that's a good reason to sing, wouldn't you? So simply, how do we get in on the song? Paul makes pretty clear the last little part, verse 11, verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. It's another way of saying, uh, so that we who were to first have faith in Christ, hope in Christ, he uses those simul- very similar ways, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How does God allow us to keep singing the song? He gives us the Holy Spirit. It's a deposit guarantee of our inheritance that's not fully here yet. What does that mean? When you go buy a house, you put a deposit down. Most of us don't have the cash flow to pay for the whole thing outright, so you put down a portion, right? It's a deposit for what you're going to fully receive at one point. In the ancient world, it was was very common to put down this this down payment that eventually you would get your inheritance, you would get the prize at the end, but it's just a little piece. So what God does and how Paul's using this is the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us and reminds us that it's coming, it's coming. There will be a day of full redemption. You're not there yet. You're still going to struggle. There's still going to be sin and idolatry. The world's still a mess, but this Holy Spirit's going to come. The person and work of the Spirit's going to come and dwell in you and remind you that the inheritance is coming and it's never going away because your past is already secure, your present is secure and your future's already secure so you can walk and trust that the spirit is at work and to remind you of these truths remind you of these promises every single day of your life just be patient and now you can sing the song you can worship God in spirit and in truth because of the Holy Spirit and it's simple it's just trust in the son of God and his work not our own that Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, trusting in that, knowing that he's done everything that we need to do. He's done everything we need to be in the family. That's how you get in. That's how you sing the song. It's not good news. It's not, hey, you need to come to church every Sunday. You need to read your Bible every day. You, you need to you know, have penance. You need to read you know, Tim Keller, or at least Tim Keller, maybe Calvin, and you need to you know, listen to Ryan's sermons and, and take notes, and, and Right? He says, believe and hope in Jesus Christ. By faith you are saved. By grace. Now, as we jump into the Lord's Supper, Christians in this room, one thing I know about songs is sometimes it takes time to get deep in our hearts and our souls. Right? I'm a, I'm a, a vinyl guy. And uh, I listened to records before uh, it was cool to listen to records. Like, we actually had records in our home, and that's all we had. Um, and, and now it's become cool for hipsters, so I've kind of jumped on the bandwagon. And one thing I love about listening to records, it's a very multi-sensory experience, because you, like, have this big, giant um, uh, case, and, and you open it, and it smells old and crusty, and I love it. And uh, you, you pull out the record, and you look at the artwork, and you read the lyrics. It's just a very, you can't get that with MP3s, people. 
But how many times have you sung a song and realized that you were singing the wrong verse? Like, what? I've been singing that wrong for like 10 years. It takes time to get the song in your guts and in your bones. I think it's God's grace and mercy that he would open Ephesians with these massive doctrines of election and adoption and unity and because it takes some time to sit with them and really get them deep down in you. I'm not saying you're not a believer. I'm not saying, yeah, once you're a believer, yeah, but, but we know how this works, right? Our hearts get cold. We, 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 we know we're adopted, but our lives point in the opposite direction, right? So how could we sit a little longer with these, these truths, these realities, these promises, and let the song get in us a little further? It does take some, some effort, doesn't it? Sitting with the Word, coming, gathering on Sundays, city groups, that's what we're trying to do, right? In your own time with the Lord. Like, like all these great, these means of grace God gives you. Don't, don't, don't abandon those. We, Paul's going to go, he's going to go right into next week into prayer and just gonna start praying things into existence that maybe aren't there right now in your heart. We've got to sit with it so that we can sing the song. And every week we're reminded of, again, the, the gospel song in a very tangible way. Um, we get to touch and, and, and dip and, and, and feel the, the broken body that was shed for us. Um, that Jesus, when he was betrayed, he, he died. He laid his life down for us. He broke his body. He shed his blood represented by the cup so that we could come in and be part of his family. And he did everything that we couldn't do for ourselves. And so part of coming to the table is, is realizing it's all grace, it's all mercy. And like we said, when there's times we're not singing the right song, maybe we need to lay those faulty songs down before we come to the table and just say, God, I'm sorry about that. There's times I don't sing your song. I sing other songs. So please do that. If you have any allergies, and uh, we have some uh, gluten-free, uh, nut-free bread there in the middle, please take that. There'll be two servers in the front. We break off a piece of the bread. We dip it in the cup. I think this is a great way to celebrate our gospel song, isn't it? Let us pray.